The children are dismissed for Children's Church today. I'm going to amend uh, what I'm preaching on today. Uh, I'm still doing John chapter 8, but I'm not doing nearly as much as uh, is in your bulletin. We're only going to be doing uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36 today, a smaller section of Scripture, but um, it is a rich piece of Scripture for us, I believe, this day. Make sure as all the kids are going by, you're smiling at them. They'll be taking care of you someday. (laughs) Be nice to them. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36 is what we'll be reading today. Hear the word of the Lord. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. So it's this idea of freedom. This idea of freedom is what we find in this passage, and that's the big idea of this particular, because Jesus comes to set us free. Now let me say this. When we moved here the first time in 2000, one of the holidays that you people, and by you people I mean Kansans, are over the top in is 4th of July. Just crazy, right? Like, as a matter of fact, these are the stats from 2018. Kansas is actually uh, imported in 2018 $12 million worth of fireworks in 2018. And that breaks down to imports per capita, $4.21 per person. Now, uh, the, the first person I ever met who said that 4th of July was their favorite holiday was Elaine Jones. And Elaine Jones was like, oh yeah, I go out. And so that $4.21 has probably gone down to like, I don't know, $2.50 per capita uh, since Elaine is now with the Lord, okay? But I recognized, and, and here's the thing, like in the midst of celebrating freedom, and that's what we do on July 4th, I mean, Kansas take it to a whole nother level. When we, our first uh, 4th of July here, I remember walking over to the Jacobson's house. We had a nice dinner. They're no longer here. Rich and they moved to the Pacific Northwest. And I remember walking home, and I remember seeing children shooting bottle rockets at each other. As I'm walking my small child back home like a block away, and, like, and I thought that we were in, uh, uh, you know, a, a Middle Eastern style war that was going on as all the children were running around and people are just blowing. And, but look, I have data though. Here it is. Because, and here's the difference, is that, you know, per capita in 2018, that Kansan spent $4.21 per person. In Virginia, we spent 13 cents per person on fireworks. So, so it's actually true, Right. Like, you guys get really, really excited about freedom. I'm not really sure you're excited about freedom. I think you're excited about the freedom to blow things up uh, and light things on fire. What we see. Now, if you think Virginia's sad, uh, my wife grew up in Delaware, uh, and fireworks are illegal, so the per capita import there is zero dollars. Even though it's the first state, because they ratify the Constitution, they do not celebrate their freedom. But freedom is a big deal. 
Freedom is a big deal when you think about, um, you know, uh, in, in Virginia, we have you know, some of the, some of the you know, George Washington, we have um, Thomas Jefferson, and we have Patrick Henry, who so famously said, in, is life so dear as he's trying to go to the second Virginia uh, convention to um, say, hey, we need to you know, really you know, gather troops and arms. And he said, is life so dear or, or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You see, Jesus came to set the captives free. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 4, what we find is that when Jesus, uh, after having come out of the wilderness, he comes out of the wilderness uh, wanderings, and then after his baptism, and he goes into the synagogue, and here's what he does. And he came to Nazareth in, in Luke chapter 14, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the original mic drop. He sits down in the synagogue and says, Jesus out. All of this has been fulfilled today to bring liberty to the captives. And the truth will set you free. When we think about tyranny, when we think about oppression, we think about that even today politically. We think about that within places like North Korea or China. Or how many of you have no idea? Two years ago, there's no way in the world you would have known what a Ukrainian flag actually looked like. But now you do, because you see that the Ukrainians are fighting for liberty. How many of you couldn't find Ukraine on a map two years ago? Actually, maybe some of you can't find it today, but um, we can find it today. You see, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 8 is this. He's saying that we want freedom, we want liberty, and what I'm here to do is I'm actually here to give you that. Because in, in John chapter 8, verse um, 30 from last week, as, as Jesus had said these things about, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When, when he follows that up in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. They believed and trusted in him. So as he's continuing to teach in verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, the problem there is that look at how they responded in verse 33. So Jesus talks about liberty. He talks about freedom. And the Jews respond in this way. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, there's a couple things wrong with that. The Jews are the most enslaved people and probably in the history of man. Everybody has been enslaving the Jews. 
When we think about this, uh, when the book of Exodus that the women are studying right now is all about God redeeming his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and bringing them to the promised land. But then even further than that, when the people rebelled, you know, we see that uh, in the time of judges, that sometimes the Philistines would come and they would actually oppress and enslave the people of God. Or we find that um, actually the Assyrians subjugated the people, or the Babylonians subjugated the people, or the Persians did. Or when Jesus is saying these things, he's saying you are actually under Roman occupation right now. And yet the people are like, well, we're not enslaved. We're not enslaved. We, we, we're, we're free. We, we can do what we want. The problem there and the problem that we have is that many people who are enslaved don't know it, and they are the people who are worse off. And I think what Jesus is saying here, it's very clear. What he's saying is there is a spiritual enslavement. And we're not talking about politics. We're not talking about land, but we're talking about a spiritual enslavement. And he's saying that, that you, in your sinfulness, in your uh, wrong ways of living and acting, he goes, you are enslaved to sin. Notice what he says. Um, if, if he says, you know, in, in, in verse 34, Jesus, again, uses this uh, term, truly, truly, Amen, amen, right there. And again, he uses this time over and over again in the, in the Gospel of John. So every time you hear the word truly, truly, and it's, and it's this phrase of speech that is only used in the Gospel of John, and what it's saying is, listen up, because I'm about to reveal something to you that's really important. So it's truly, truly, when we see that in the Gospel of John, it should be wake up and pay attention, because Jesus is about to say something and reveal something about who he is, what he's done, and about your state and our need for salvation. But here he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And what he's talking about there is that if you are in sin, what, you need to be, what needs to happen to you is you need to be adopted into the family of God. Romans 5, we're called the enemies of God. Galatians 3, we're called the children of God. How do we go from enemy to child? It's through the freedom and the liberation of the gospel. Now, there are many out there, and maybe a few here today, who would say, I'm not enslaved to sin. I've never been enslaved to sin. That's similar to this. Consider um, maybe somebody who's a, a practicing alcoholic. And when you try to go to them and you say, you know, you've got a problem with drinking, they would say, me, an alcoholic? Not me. I can stop any time. So how about somebody who's addicted to, you know, maybe um, sensuality or, or, or sex addict? And he might be in bondage, and he will probably retort that, that you are the one in bondage to archaic conventions and a repressive lifestyle. People do not like to be told that they are enslaved. Like, they, like the Jews, they are easily desensitized to their true condition. You know, and, and that's the old uh, adage, if you place a frog in a pot and you bring the pot to boil, you can boil the frog, but if you throw the frog in a boiling pot of water, he'll jump out. I think what Jesus is saying is, all of you Jews, in the midst of your own sinfulness, you're enslaved to sin. But the good news is this, is that I've come to set you free. Now, let me, let me talk about one other area that I think is, that grips us today. Because, you, you know, you, you might not be, you know, have an issue with pornography or sexuality, or you may not have an issue with alcoholism, but let me hit this issue here. 
How about the issue of um, how about the issue of shame? I think the issue of shame. Uh, let me quote um, just a brief quote by Ed Welch. He says, "Shame controls far too many of us. Worthless, inferior, rejected, weak, humiliated, failure." It all adds up to wishing we could get away from others and hide. We know what shame feels like. The way out, however, is harder to find. Time, and this is regarding shame, time doesn't help, neither does confession, because shame is just so as often from what others do to you as it is from what you have done. He defines shame in this way. And the reason I bring this up is I see this a lot. I see this a lot in the midst of 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 just pastoral ministry, you're working with people, that there's a deep shame. Now, now guilt is different than shame. Guilt has more of a, a, a law, a courtroom kind of feel where you're declared either guilty or innocent. But shame is different. Shame defined as this. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did. Something done to you or something associated with you you feel exposed and humiliated. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You were treated as if you were less than human, or were, you were associated with something less than human, and there were witnesses. Brothers and sisters, I think that there's a tremendous amount of people who feel exposed and humiliated today. He goes on to say, shame is not a mirage, it is very real. As an example, he says, a sexually violated woman feels contaminated by what has been done to her, and she really is contaminated. A person who has lived with rejection can't neutralize it with happy thoughts. Shame is like dirt. Not, no matter how it happened, you are a mess and something has to be done about it. When you are dirty, there is no feel as if, um, feel as if about it. Wishful thinking is ineffective. Psychiatric medications, drugs, or alcohol, a change in perspective, and self-affirmation are equally ineffective. Shame demands something much more potent than these superficial treatments. But the good news is that the Bible is about shame from start to finish. I mean, what was the first thing that Adam and Eve do after they, they sin in the garden? They try to cover themselves. Why? because of the shame of what they've done. The Bible is all about shame from start to finish. If we are willing, God's beautiful words break through. Look at Jesus through the lens of shame and see how the marginalized and the worthless are his favorites. Those people who feel shame, those are the people that, is, that the tenderness of Jesus, he reaches out and touches them. Lepers who had never been touched, or at least not been touched for years. They're his favorites and become his people. God cares for the shamed. Through Jesus, you are covered, adopted, cleansed, and healed. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 7, probably one of my favorite stories. Jesus goes to eat with a Pharisee. The Pharisee asks him to dine, and when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, I'm in John, or Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
Now, that, that term sinner there is, uh, we try to euphemize that word sinner. She was probably a woman of loose living. She probably could have been a prostitute. She was somebody that everybody knew, this is someone that Jesus should not be around. And this woman, this woman who's probably filled with shame and humiliation and sadness and rejection, and standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now what Jesus is doing there is Jesus is saying, I'm taking away the shame. And I'm doing it. Go in peace. This woman had not experienced peace in years. And the shame is like dirt. You can't think it away. It has to be cleansed, and there has to be healing, and the healing that occurs in this woman's life is the healing of Jesus. I see so many people who are just overwhelmed by their sins, and there's, or, or sins that have been done to them. Again, shame works, and they feel, if, they feel humiliated and rejected and forsaken. That's enslavement. That's the enslavement, or at least a piece of the enslavement that Jesus comes to deal with. Now, here's what he says. Go back up to John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So this idea of abiding is, is being connected to Jesus. You will see this again in John 15. He uses this term abide. We sang a whole song about it earlier, so we, we know what it is. Um, but this idea of abiding means believing, believing, and obeying. So it's not just believing in the words of Christ, just not believing in Jesus, but it's also obeying what Jesus has for us, knowing that what Jesus has for us is better than anything that we can come up on our own, that Jesus wants us to flourish and live in fellowship and live unashamedly in the freedom of the gospel. You see, uh, when we think about this idea of um, abiding 
You know, genuine faith holds to Jesus. It perseveres through trials that shape our faith. Now, the word disciple there, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, disciple means learner, one who is learning, one who is learning. And so when we're abiding in Christ, we're believing in Jesus, we're obeying what he does, abiding. But if you are truly my disciples, you're also learning about Jesus, learning. And now, and again, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a redundant here, but but we need to be in our word. We need to be in the word of God. We need to immerse ourselves, to steep ourselves within the word of God so that we are constantly learning. If you get to the point where you're reading the Bible and nothing's new to you, you're not learning. You are not being led by the Spirit. Because I'm telling you, when you open up the Bible and you're studying the Bible, you could have read that verse a hundred different times. A thousand, ten thousand times, and the Lord will reveal through the power of the Spirit what you are to believe about Him and how you are to live today. We are to pursue this. Now, um, when we think about this, so, so if you're abiding, if you're believing and obeying in my word, again, in my word, in the word of Jesus— in the word of, that we have that, that is inerrant and infallible, then you are truly my disciples. So you're truly ones who are learning about me, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what is this truth that Jesus is talking about here? Now let me talk about how, what Jesus does in the midst of the, the, the freedom act that he's doing, the liberating act that he's doing. What are we free from? Let me just give you a list. Um, first, Christ frees us from the guilt of sin. This heavy burden of unforgiven transgression lies so heavy on many consciences, no longer presses them down. You see, when Jesus comes, he takes away the guilt of sin. They can look back to their old sins, however black and many, I'm quoting J.C. Ryle here, they can look back on their old sins, however black and many, and say, you cannot condemn me. They can look back on year, long years of carelessness and worldliness and say, who shall lay anything to my charge, or who can condemn me? It's the same thing in the beginning of John chapter 8, when the woman is brought to Jesus, and he says, I will not condemn you. And again, what does condemn mean? It means unfit for use. So what Jesus does is he takes these condemned individuals, and he says, no, you are fit for use, and, and the Spirit of God is going to dwell you, and I will make you a temple of the living God from a condemned shell, a broken cistern, as Scripture says, to the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ frees us from the guilt of sin. Christ also frees us from the power of sin. It is no longer rules and reigns in their hearts and carries them before it like a flood. Through the power of Christ's Spirit, they put to death the deeds of their bodies and crucify their flesh with its affections and lusts. Through his grace working in them, they get the victory over their evil inclinations. The flesh may fight, but it does not conquer them. The devil may tempt and vex, but does not overcome them. They are no longer the slaves of lusts and appetites and passions and tempers. Over all these things, they are more than conquerors through him who loved them. This is true liberty. This is what freedom is about. 
Now, we actually sing a song about that. Augustus Toplady's song, Rock of Ages, where he talks about be of sin, the double cure. And you're listening to that, you're like, what is the double cure? Well, the double cure is talking about it's the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And when Jesus comes and he rules and reigns, he breaks the power. He breaks the shackles so that you are no longer enslaved to the guilt and the power of sin. And you have freedom indeed. But not only that, Christ frees us from the slavish fear of God. Again, these, are, um, these points are adapted from, from J.C. Ryle. But what he says here is, they no longer look at him, meaning the Father, with dread and alarm and as an offended ma- maker. They no longer hate him and get away from him like Adam among the trees of the garden. They no longer tremble at the thought of his judgment. Through the spirit of adoption which Christ has given them, they look on God as a reconciled father. No longer he frees you from being afraid of God, but rather this freedom that he gives us actually adopts us into God's family. Again, Romans 5, you're the enemy. Galatians 3, you're a child. How does that happen? It happens on the cross. When Jesus took upon himself all the sins of everyone who would believe, and what he does is he takes all of our sins upon himself, and he credits his righteousness to all those who would believe, so that when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, our Father looks upon us and delights in us, so that we can come to him and say, Abba, Father, or Daddy, or Papa, or however it might be. He not only frees us from guilt of sin, power of sin, slavish fear of God, but Christ frees us from the fear of man. You see, when Christ redeems us, we are more concerned about what he thinks of us than we are about what other people think of us. Matter of fact, somebody might say, that guy is just caught up with Jesus. That guy's a Jesus freak. And you know what we say? Hallelujah. Hallelujah because I want to be connected and joined to Jesus. I don't need to be connected to other people. I'm not worried about what they think of me. And that is a big deal right now, because there are many people who are so worried about what other people think of them, what somebody, how somebody perceives them, that they will not stand up for Jesus. But he not only frees us from this fear of man, but he also frees us from the fear of death. You believers no longer look forward to it with silent dismay as a horrible thing when they do not care to think of. Through Christ, they can look at this last enemy calmly in the face and say, you cannot harm me. They can look forward to all that comes after death, decay, resurrection, judgment, and eternity, and and yet not feel downcast. They can say, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? As a matter of fact, when, again, when we do funerals, when we do memorial services here, I mean, as a believer, this is a believer who has is, who is just passed upon and they have gotten to heaven before you, there should be a tinge of jealousy that they got there before you did. Like, man, they cut in line. That's not right. They get to see Jesus before I get to see him. Like, there should be this, we do not fear death. We do not fear death. We go, death will only bring us closer to Christ. Like when Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We don't fear death. Matter of fact, uh, as my 
My dad's a, a crazy guy. Um, and, and again, I, I may have told you this before, but when he meets somebody and he goes, you know, he, he'll tell people, you know, like, hey, how are you doing, George? And his name is George, too, okay? And he will, he'll tell people, my life is almost perfect. And, and when they ask him, they're like, what do you mean your life is almost perfect? He goes, the only way my life could get be better is if I died. Because that means I get to be with Jesus. And I think he actually believes it. <laughs> he goes, I'm looking forward to the day I get to be with Jesus. You see, it, Jesus frees us from the fear of death, from the fear of man, from guilt, from the dominion of, of sin. But best of all, Christ frees us forever. Forever. Let me read again. Once enrolled in the list of heavenly citizens, their name shall never be struck off. Once presented with the freedom of Christ's kingdom, they shall possess it forevermore. The highest privileges of this world's freedom can only endure for a lifetime. The freest citizen on earth must submit at length to die, but the freedom of Christ's people is eternal. They carry it down to the grave, and, it's still, and it lives still. They will rise again with it at the last day and enjoy the privileges of it forevermore. This is true liberty. This is what it means to be free. To be free indeed. You know, brothers and sisters, the question before us is, are we free? Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe what he says? about himself? Do we believe that the only way that we can be saved is through believing in Jesus fully? I'll tell you what, we have um, a whole generation of people right now who are struggling with, with um, loneliness and depression, and it's overwhelming. And I think a lot of that is due to the shame that I talked about before. But when Jesus comes, he brings healing and cleansing and love and forgiveness. Um, an old pastor in 1884, he wrote this. He said, there is no more galling yoke to be found than the thraldom of evil passions, tyrant lusts and sinful habits, uncontrolled tempers which burst forth like a hurricane, temptations which hurry a man onward toward the precipice of utter ruin, the dark trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil, all drawing a man along the pathway that leads to eternal damnation. Here is a foe that is terrible indeed, yet in Christ there is freedom from the dominion of sin. This is what we find in Christ. He goes on to use this, um, this man's name is George um, Everard, and here's what he says um, regarding sin and, and the freedom that he has. And he goes, I often think of a lesson I learned one snowy day in Birmingham. A big bully was unmercifully snowballing a smaller boy. So at this point, he's a, he's a pastor, and he sees this you know, bigger boy just unmerciful, you know, you're just clobbering this kid with snowballs, Right? But when the little fellow saw me coming, he ran behind me and kept me between himself and his enemy until he was able to escape from him. Let me ever make Christ my shield. 
Let me ever put him between me and my temptations, between me and my cares and fears and perils, and he will answer for them. No evil can overcome his power, and when I thus trust in him, no sin or evil can overcome me. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we might place Jesus between us and our sins, and we would run to him and say, Lord Jesus, free me from the oppression, from the guilt, from the fear of man, from the fear of death. Oh, Jesus, as my elder brother, as my savior, as my prophet, my priest, and my king, would you protect me? And Jesus always says, yes, I will protect you. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know the power and strength of Jesus that we would know what it is to cling to him and abide with him and the truth of the gospel, the truth of his penal substitutionary atonement on the cross for us, it might delight our hearts, that we might walk in faith and abide with him. Father, help us to believe and obey. Help us to understand what freedom is in Christ. Father, help us, protect us, save us, We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.